and everybody's love. All right, well, here we are in the book of Daniel. Let's all uh, go to Daniel chapter 1 today. I'm always so grateful when uh, I see one of God's men rise up out of the mess of this life or this world or our nation or wherever it may be. And that one man or one woman, they become this steadying voice of strength and godliness in the midst of whatever chaos or whatever's happening. In America, we had a man like that whose name was Billy Graham. He wasn't perfect, but whenever there was a tragedy in the world, he would show up. (laughs) He would just like be there. And he would bring this sense of calm to the situation, um, to the people that were there. And he, he ministered to 13 American presidents. He sat with 13 American presidents, gave all of them the gospel, including Donald Trump. And, and not, not just 13 American presidents, but countless world leaders. He, uh, he was able to keep himself unspotted from the world, as far as we know, just that just those real big spots that would take down a person. But most importantly, I think about Billy Graham is that he just never went off topic. (laughs) No matter who he was talking to, if he was on the Johnny Carson show or anywhere, he would tell you, Jesus came to die for your sins. And the only way you can have salvation is through Jesus. He always gave the gospel, no matter where he was or who he was talking to. And you know what? That man was respected for it. And there's just something special about a person like that. And we need another Billy Graham. And I will say from what I've seen so far, I'm thankful that his son Franklin has sure seemed to do a good job rising up, stepping up in that place. But I wanted to set that up because that is how I feel about this man, Daniel. Daniel, I've just been sitting in awe this week as I study Daniel's character, his intelligence, his people skills, his wisdom, his faith, blown away by this man, Daniel. There are few people, as a matter of fact, you will ever read about in any book, in any place in the world, there are few people you will ever read about, including people in Scripture, that rise to Daniel's level. To be advisor to seven kings, seven foreign kings, to be surrounded with power, pleasure, wealth, and yet for him to keep his heart completely focused on the Lord and to know how to disagree with people without being disagreeable. Among everything else that Daniel did and brought to the table and the prophecies that God gave him and everything that he did, this man was an absolutely incredible servant of the Lord and everybody in this room, all of us, could learn something from him. So you'll see what I mean as we go along today, but Daniel chapter 1 is all about the personal history of Daniel, and we're going to begin by looking at the captivity and re-education of Daniel. I'm sorry if you didn't get your notes. There is the app there you can follow along with. Maybe somehow we didn't get them printed this morning. I don't know, but anyway. So last week, we spoke about the captivity of the Jews that were in Judah, and let's just rehearse a little bit. We went to First Chronicles 36 and read through that and kind of how it all took place, the setting for the whole book of Daniel. But in just in these first two verses in Daniel chapter 1, he recounts kind of real quickly what had happened. First, 
verse. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. Remember, Jehoiakim was one of the last kings of Judah. He wasn't the last, but he was one of the last ones. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in and brought Jehoiakim out. And, um, and Nebuchadnezzar was uh, quite a man, but, but we'll be talking more about him in, in future lessons. But at this point, he bring, comes in, he brings, hauls off about probably 10,000 captives uh, from Judah. Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, the Lord did this. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, that is Nebuchadnezzar's God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. <clears throat> so here's the setting. From the world's perspective, it seemed like the God of Judah was unable to defend them, his people, against the great king Nebuchadnezzar. If you were a Babylonian, you're looking at every, the world events taking place, you would think, man, there's nobody like our King Nebuchadnezzar. He went over there, he besieged the people of Judah, he brought them back, and it's very plain that their God could not defend them from our King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, as a show of that, Nebuchadnezzar brought the pieces out of God's house, the God, Jehovah God's house, and brought those pieces of, and articles from the temple and put them in, his, in the house of his God. His God's name was Marduk. But God was behind all of this, and he was willing to allow people to think this because it was more important for God to be true to his word. God always does what he says. And that's what he had told his people. If you disobey, I will allow you to be taken captive. But Nebuchadnezzar at this time thought he was greater than God, and whenever he took a city or a nation captive, he had a method of making that nation more Babylonian. He was going to make the city and the people. He was going to try to bring them into his culture. He wanted to deconstruct the culture, the mindset, and the way of life that people had known for so long, of the, of the, the, the people he had conquered. And by the way, I want to bring that out for just a minute. Today, this is a popular term, deconstruction. It's the process of deconstruction, people said. And that's just an academic way of saying it's the Systematic pulling apart of the belief system that you were raised in. So <clears throat> several popular Christians have made that term really po uh, popular. They walk away from the faith and they use this terminology. Well, I'm, I'm deconstructing. I'm going through a deconstruction phase. I'm, I'm trying to get rid of, I'm pulling apart all the things that I was raised in. And the things I used to believe. Things like the infallibility of the Bible or the omniscience of God, or the deity of Christ, or the reality of hell. Uh, I just don't believe that anymore. I'm trying to deconstruct my brain. Now, the devil is trying very hard today to Babylonianize the minds of people who are raised in church. Our children. Um, make no mistake, the battle's on for every one of the children in this church. The devil is just like Nebuchadnezzar. He is, he is trying to conquer them. And bring everyone to his side. And you can see here in Daniel chapter 1 that the, the method that Nebuchadnezzar uses, we might call it cultural immersion. And that's what we're going to kind of use that term. <clears throat> the cultural immersion policies of Nebuchadnezzar. He had this way of doing this with any conquered nation. 
And you're going to see it kind of right here on Daniel chapter 1 and how he did that. Verse 3. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. Verse 4. And uh, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability to, uh, in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. So the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar does was he takes the best and the brightest and he separates them from their families. So that's the first thing in this cultural immersion process. There it is, separation from family. Notice what it says in, in, uh, in verse 3. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of... Uh, bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. He wants these to be of royal and noble lineage. I want them to be of the king's seed and of the princes. We're going to bring them out. But not only that, then he says these people, they need to have no blemishes. That refers to their physical fitness. He says they need to be well favored and that refers to their physical appearance. I want only good looking young people. They need to be skillful in wisdom, cunning in knowledge, and understanding science. That's referring to their mental ability. They need to be sharp. They need to have shown that they're intellectually capable. And then such as had ability to stand in the king's palace. He's talking about they have poise and they have confidence to be in the king's court. They're going to serve the king one day. And they need to have just something in them. So he says, I want you to absolutely bring the best and the brightest. I only want the sharpest and the best looking kids from over there in Israel, from over there in Judah. And you bring them over here, and you separate them from their families, first of all. Daniel was probably about 15 or 16 years old right now. And now I just want to think about this. If that's the kind of people that he wanted, this gives us a clue to the kind of person that Daniel was. Ladies, Daniel was a good-looking guy. <laughs> Daniel was <Where's> sharp. <laughs> he, was, he was smart. He had poise. There was something about this man. So that just gives us a little insight into who he was. Now let me give a quick word about this eunuch situation. It says the master of the eunuchs took him. Now Warren Wiersbe points out something very interesting on this. You know, originally the term eunuch referred to a servant who had been castrated so that he could serve the royal harem. But the title actually eventually and gradually came to be applied really to any important court official. So you, you don't, it wouldn't have to be somebody who was just castrated. In fact, the word is applied to Potiphar in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 36. And we know Potiphar was married. So, and Jewish law forbade castration, so it's hard to believe that these young Jewish men who kind of withstood and resisted some of the other Babylonian customs would just submit uh, to this kind of thing. So it's really actually unlikely that Daniel became a eunuch in the sense that we might be thinking. Again, Daniel's about 15 or 16, and the next step after separating him from his family was to begin the indoctrination classes. They're actually going to take him to school. Look what it says in verse 4, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. So the next step is this indoctrination. These students were going to be on a three-year journey of learning the language and the literature of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Math, law, 
administration and organization, business and finance, architecture and engineering, astronomy and astrology, languages. Daniel, actually, interestingly, if you read the book of Daniel, uh, in the original languages, it's written in two different languages. It's written some in Aramaic and some in Hebrew. Daniel was well-versed in both languages, and he probably learned that here. There's a scholar and an archaeologist, D.J. Wiseman, who wrote this, explaining what they learned. Probably the study of Sumerian, Akkadian, and Aramaic among the languages, and an extensive literature written in them, including various mythological texts, as well as historiography, astronomy, mathematics, and medicine. They would likely have to imbibe the scientific omen texts, astrological omens, medical omens, and nor could they neglect dream interpretation. It was, okay, so this is all this education. It was all about Nebuchadnezzar is going to put them into school and he's going to turn these Jews into Babylonians. That's the whole idea. And let me just bring this out here, that this is what many universities today are actively trying to do. And we know this. Turn Christians into atheists. There's just no doubt about it. They are, it's not just something that's under, under the surface. It's blatantly taught in classrooms. And we better be very careful. I just want to say to, to help, we need to help our young people navigate through the maze of the Babylonians that are out there. You know, some might use Daniel's life to say, well, it's fine for kids to run off to any university, it really doesn't matter. They'll be fine. Daniel was fine. Daniel went through it all, and he turned out fine. But let me just say a couple things about that. Is And that is, first of all, this training was forced upon Daniel. And second, this chapter really brings out something interesting if you read through it. That it was really only Daniel and his three friends. In verse 17, it kind of really especially brings that out. But it was Daniel and his three friends among the hundreds and really thousands of people who were brought in that remained faithful to the Lord. These four, it was very, very specific. So really what it's telling us there is that it's a very rare young person who can be inundated day in and day out with the world's philosophies and still stand strong. And I don't believe, I don't believe a Christian should never go to a secular college And I don't think that's necessarily what the Bible would say, but some Christians should never go to a secular college. And a wise parent will be a guide for them in this area. But having said all that, it is possible for a young person like Daniel who have maybe a visibly strong defiance to the world's everything (laughs) and an even stronger godly support system And that's walking through it with them. And they're discussing things every day. And they're talking about what they're learning. It is possible for that young person to maybe do better. And do something like Daniel. And go through it. Because as we all know in this room. The world is an awfully tempting place. And Nebuchadnezzar seemed to be an expert at using the art of temptation. Because look at the next thing he would do. To try to Babylonianize these young people. Um, Verse 5, And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof 
they might stand before the king. So here's what, what Nebuchadnezzar does. He offers them privilege. Give these guys the king's food. Give them drink, the king's drink. Let them get a taste for the high life. Let them just enjoy it. See what the king, how the king lives every day. And he wanted them to begin to crave that kind of living. It's the temptation of pleasure that we all face. And then, not only that, but in verse 5, you see the temptation of power as well. Because he says, after three years, let me go back. After three years, at the end, nursing them three years, that at the end thereof, they might stand before the king. The great king, Nebuchadnezzar, who's been conquering lands. These young people, after three years of training and Babylonianizing, are going to stand before me, the king. You're going to stand in my court. You're going to advise me. It's this power. It's a sense of power that they're going to get. You're going to stand among kings. You're going to stand among presidents. You see the carrots that, that Nebuchadnezzar is dangling in front of these teenagers. Then mentally to get in their heads and to erase the Jewishness completely out of them, he changes their names from their religious Jewish names that their parents gave them to whole new Babylonian names. Look in verse 5, uh, 6 actually. There it is. And now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. That's their names that... Their parents gave them. Verse 7, Unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. So he changes their names. Daniel means God is my judge. Now, I put that down here for you. God is my judge. The name, his new name, Belteshazzar, means Mabel, or uh, it's a false god. Protect his life. Hananiah, Jehovah mean, is, means Jehovah is gracious, but his name is changed to Shadrach. Command of Aku, which is a moon god. Mishael, who is, who is what God is. To Meshach, who is what Aku is. And then Azariah, Jehovah has helped to Abednego, servant of Nebo, another false god. This was a full-blown brainwashing. His, we changed their names that they grew up with. We're not even going to call them by those names anymore. We want them to have a, every day to be thinking about this false God. Anytime we call them that, they would know what those names meant. But it's very interesting here, and, and I want us to see this. We don't see it in our English translations. But Daniel uses a play on words in verses 7 and 8. And it's, it's fascinating. So verse 7 He tells us that they got their names changed. But look what he says. Unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel. That word gave. That word gave uh, in Hebrew is sim. And look, and then he uses that same exact word in verse 8. But it's translated differently into a different English word. But look what it says. But Daniel purposed in his heart. Or Daniel simmed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat. So the word purpose and the word gave are the same exact word. It means to put or to set. So what Daniel is saying is the prince of the eunuchs set a name on us. He put a name on us. 
but I, or he put a name on me, but I set my heart to not defile my, uh, myself. So he may have set it on me, but I, I was setting something also inside. Well, we're seeing what, what was going on on the inside of Daniel. Daniel's exposing what's, what was going on inside of his heart as all this was taking place. I am absolutely determined not to go along with this brainwashing. That's what he's saying. And as stubborn as they are about trying to change me, I'm just as stubborn not to change on the inside. They may set that on me, but I I have this set in me. The world can force a young person to write an exam paper about a ridiculous topic, but they can't force that young person's heart to accept it as truth. They can do things to me, but they can't touch what's in me. They They have their agenda, but my heart has its own agenda. And I think if a young person has that kind of, I have my agenda. If I'm going somewhere, I'm going to change this whole university to, to, for the glory of God. If they go in with a strong agenda and, and an unshakable agenda, like Daniel, then they can make it. This was Daniel. He was smart. I mean, to, to use a play on words like this shows just uh, a, a, an intellectual ability. But also he was more than smart. Daniel was wise. He had this wisdom from the Lord. And that's what the next verses lay out for us, really. And this is what tells his whole story. The fa- his faithfulness to the Lord. Look at verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. Now it's important to note that, you know, he's, he's saying you need to eat this meat. And Daniel says, I have purposed in my heart to not do this. And he says, man, are you kidding me? If I, if I don't have you eat this meat and you look like you're, you're shriveling away in front of the king, guess who's going to be dead? Me, because I'm supposed to be taking care of you. But he, now it's, we need to realize he doesn't actually give Daniel a hard no here. He says, uh, you know, this could endanger me, but he doesn't actually say, no, I'm not going to allow it. It's almost like maybe I don't like this idea that you're talking about here, but, you know, if somebody else is in, in charge, you go talk to somebody else, you know, we'll see. So Daniel goes and talks to the next guy down the chain. And he proposes this idea. So now we see a new person that he's going to talk to. Verse 11. Then d- said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat, that is vegetables, and water to drink. It's disgusting. And then let our countenance be looked <laughs> upon. Amen, Matt Gomes. Amen. amen. <laughs> then let our countenances be looked upon before thee and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter and proved them ten days. And at the end of the ten days, the countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Back then, to be fatter was better. 
Ramat. Then Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. So here we see Daniel's wise appeal. Instead, yeah, <laughs> instead of expecting a Gentile officer to obey God, this person who didn't love God, didn't think of God's word, instead of expecting this man to obey God, and then potentially maybe get himself in trouble with the king, Daniel and his friends took this wise and gentle approach. And he says here, let me propose a 10-day test. Again, Daniel's not only smart, he's wise and winsome. Just, he understood people. Uh, he didn't lie or manipulate the person. He, he didn't, he didn't um, try to get, beat around the bush. He was straightforward with it, but in such a wise way. He also didn't start a holy war. He didn't come in guns blazing and condemn everybody. You bunch of Babylonian, disgusting, wicked pagans. He, didn't, he wasn't like that. And condemning them all for their unbiblical eating habits, he simply proposed a test. And a lot of us could learn from Daniel. I was thinking this week, what would Daniel have been like on social media? <laughs> How would, what, if, what posts Bam. would Daniel... <laughs> Hell yeah, man. What post would Daniel have posted? Uh, let's propose a test. Let's propose a test. And let's see at the end of our life. You follow Marduk, I'll follow God. And let's see what happens. I guarantee that this whole thing caused the prince of the eunuchs and others to respect Daniel. They maybe didn't understand Daniel, but they respected that man. And I remember what Pastor Mike has said, and others have said it, but I... I remember Pastor Mike saying that it's better to be respect, respected than to be liked. And that's so important for us right now. Just, I don't care if the world likes me, but they need to respect me. Now notice what he, he, did, he wanted to eat vegetables as we talk about. And I, like I said, what's wrong with this guy? But a couple things is the law, the law didn't say that, they, that you're supposed to only eat vegetables. The Old Testament law allowed for meats, some meats. But maybe, perhaps, it was because how the meats were prepared here. You know, there, there was rules that God had given on how to prepare the meat. And um, so possibly that's what Daniel's problem was with the king's meat. And I, I, we know the king, I'm sure, the king was not concerned about serving kosher food, you know. And the other thing is that the meat could have been sacrificed to idols, as some people have brought out, which would be another issue of Daniel's, on Daniel's conscience or one author suggested that I was reading, and I think was very interesting, is that perhaps it was simply Daniel's way of standing against the whole Babylonian program of assimilation. You know, it's, it's of not allowing these Babylonians to control every aspect of my life. I'm going to stand in this area. Um, maybe I just want to keep some distinctiveness. I just want to be different. Uh, I don't know. But I, you do know that it's certainly true that Daniel was not going to allow Babylon to get inside of him. He purposed in his heart to not defile himself with the king's meat. And so it was his main goal, I am not going to allow Babylon in me. <laughs> they may be around me and on me, but I ain't letting them in me. And, I've, and we have a duty to do the same, be in the world, but not the world in us. 
as James, the book of James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And I also want to make one more comment on Daniel's diet here. This is not a biblical basis for demanding that everybody have a vegetarian diet. As I mentioned, God is not opposed to eating meats. Uh, we know that. And most likely, uh, Daniel, gradu- once he graduated out of this three-year program, he probably got his own place to live. In fact, we know he did because later on he was praying out of his, and you could see him in his window. And he could probably have all the meals he wanted in any, and he could prepare them in a kosher way that he wanted them or whatever. So the, the main point of this chapter is how Daniel and his three friends are able to be in Babylon without losing their love and faith for the Lord Jesus, the one true God. 10,000 people are brought to Babylon in, in that way, that first wave. And, and then later, many more. But these four stood out. They were blessed because of their faithfulness to the Lord. They were the faithful remnant. And you always see that in the Bible. No matter what, there's always a remnant. There's always a few that are faithful to the Lord. Always. And let's see what God does for them here as we end. Verse 17. And as for these four children, this is where it really seems to bring out and stress that as for these four children... Out of all, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king communed with them. Wow. This is a, this is a big moment. I mean, again, let's, play, let's put Daniel let's, where he really is here. He's now... At the end of his three years, he and his, these other individuals are standing before the great King Nebuchadnezzar. The king is going to evaluate their, uh, their education and see if they've made it. That's a pretty high position to have, the king, uh, to have the king evaluate you. And therefore they stood before the king, verse 19. Verse 20, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better. Amen than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued, even unto the first year of King Cyrus. So I just want to point out here, and that's a, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but this is Daniel's faithfulness rewarded. Knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom, it says, and Daniel had understanding and dreams. You know, from the casual observer, you're looking at Daniel, it looked like Daniel was just this really smart guy. But the secret was in verse 17. And as for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill. It was God behind it all. And if anybody, uh, if anybody is truly wanting to know what's behind these godly young people, or God, anybody who's serving the Lord and making a difference, it is that God is giving them something. There's an old hymn by Margaret Clarkson called The God of the Ages, and she uses this term in there about God, and this is the term, quietly sovereign. Quietly sovereign. That's what we see here. In the middle of all this, uh, you're wondering, man, where's God here? Because Nebuchadnezzar's taking over and all of this, but God is quietly sovereign, and he's working in the heart and through a man named Daniel. In, in fact, it says that God makes him ten times better than any of his other advisors. God also gives Daniel influence for many, many years. At the last verse there, verse 21, it says that uh, 
I don't have it here, but um, that he went all the way, he served all the way through to Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus comes 70 years later after Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel serves from Nebuchadnezzar all the way through and stands before every one of those kings all the way to King Cyrus of Persia after Babylon had fallen. That means Daniel was in his mid to late 80s when he passed away. So now think about this. This young captive boy from Judah became a wise man who outlived kings, outlived nations. God's man outlived them all. Kings, presidents, people with earthly power and money may come and go, and they will come and go. But God's people keep going on. And God's church keeps marching on. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this is why we need to stand up like true people of God not, and just remain faithful. No matter what happens, we just keep doing what God says to do. And we be like, we're like Daniel. We stand firm. But we stand firm in a way that wins the respect of people. And, and, and that helps us make a mark on the world that's, uh, that are people, and the people around us. Like a Billy Graham, who never goes off topic. None of us should ever go off topic. We're always on topic, no matter who we're talking to. So let's, let's just be encouraged with that this morning to make a mark on the people around us like Daniel. Father, we love you. We thank you that there was a man like Daniel that you can point to and you've given to us, Lord, as somebody we, could, uh, we can really emulate, Lord. Thank you. That, Lord, you can work in us, too, in our time, in our day, in our Babylon. And, oh, Lord, help us to stay faithful, but in a way that earns that respect with the others around us. We love you, we honor you, Lord, and we thank you for this moment in time and history, Lord, that we can be here to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Lord bless you all. Thanks.